Rural hospitals not only provide acute care services in their communities, but they are also the primary resource for chronic disease management and health education. But rural communities continue to struggle with high rates of chronic disease like diabetes. So how do rural hospitals provide chronic disease care to their communities in order to improve health outcomes and patients' quality of life? Through direct community involvement, comprehensive outpatient care, and a commitment to giving patients what they need to care for themselves. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hutchire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 59 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hutchire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. Rachel, nutrition and diabetes education are critically important for patients in rural communities because we know rural America has high rates of these conditions. That's right. And today we're talking with someone who has been providing that care to patients for many years right here in Hillsdale. Our guest today is Denise Lovinger, a good friend of mine and a director of our outpatient dietitian program and diabetes educator here at Hillsdale Hospital. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Denise. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So to start, Denise, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at Hillsdale Hospital? Okay. Um, I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified diabetes education and care specialist. I've been doing this for almost 32 years. Oh, no way. I've been, 26 of those years have been here at Hillsdale Hospital. Wow. Um, working with patients, helping them meet their nutrition goals, helping them lower their blood sugars with diabetes, and also helping our inpatients with their nutrition needs as well. Well, thank God there are no child labor laws back then because you had to start when you were 10. <laughs> oh, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. so, uh, Denise, it's always, Thanks, JJ. <laughs> it's always great to have you here in, in our studio and then also to have you on the Team Hillsdale. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a minute uh, in really more of a global perspective of this issue in rural America, which is, you know, child uh, obesity, diabetes, and those type of things. But, mm-hmm. but now that we've established who you are and what you do, let's start with the why. We do this on every episode so we get to know our guests just a little bit better. So, Denise, I'm going to ask you, what is your why? What motivates you and what gets you up out of bed in the morning? So, professionally, this sounds very cliche, but I think it's common among all healthcare workers is is to help people. I had a grandmother when I was in high school and early college with diabetes. And during her time with diabetes, I saw her lose a leg, go on dialysis, have three major heart attacks, and ultimately die from her mm-hmm. diabetes. Oh, wow. And I just, at that time, they didn't have as much information, and I just felt like she wasn't getting care and education, Mm -hmm. Um, and I decided to go into nutrition, actually, Mm -hmm. at that point, Mm -hmm. Um, and what What gets me up in the morning is working with unique individuals. Mm. Every day I meet four to six unique individuals, and it's almost a puzzle to take what their life circumstances bring to food Mm -hmm. and what our goal is and trying to figure that out. And food is a very personal issue. When Mm -hmm. you start talking about food, you're talking about emotions, you're talking about family. Many, many people have disordered eating thoughts and you're learning Mm -hmm. about those. So it's, it's nice to establish that relationship for me and to really get to know that patient I'm working with but then to try to solve that puzzle mm-hmm. and how to make it easier for them, which is often difficult mm-hmm. sometimes. 
And we've been through quite a bit here, Denise, uh, for our listeners. Uh, you know, we, you and I have traveled the road uh, many years here at Hillsdale. You were our director of nutrition services, which uh, ran our entire cafeteria services for patients and outpatient. Uh, did a remarkable job. We had a big task ahead of us, and you tackled it. You you affiliated with the Michigan Hospital Association to create a healthy hospital initiative. And you can remember those tough days of getting rid of the deep fried foods and getting rid of the soda pops. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't easy, was it? Mm-hmm. It was not easy, but and it was important. It was. And we changed, I believe, we changed a culture here. Because in, in no offense to those who came before us, mm-hmm. uh, the reality of it was it was not healthy. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of uh, unhealthy foods and habits that were being fostered, and we had to change that. But that was very difficult. And then you took the same approach, you know, as we engaged in several programs, diabetes education, number one, um, and we had a grant from, you know, the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan Mm -hmm. uh, that funded our program Mm -hmm. in which we were educating our community about diabetes and also provided them some, you know, insulin and some other things for the indigent in our community. Mm -hmm. And I think we saw a lot of progress in that area. We also tackled food banks, you know, and mm-hmm. the trying to create a healthier food bank, which at the time, you know, we were given Pop-Tarts away and cereals that were sugared up. And mm-hmm. and so we've been down, you know, a lot of different roads uh, here at the hospital trying to keep our community healthy. And, you know, part of what the program today is going to focus on is, you know, how did we do it in one little niche area? Before we get started with that, though, and I know it's not part of our script, mm-hmm. but I want to ask you, how did life change for you during COVID as it relates to education? You know, as, as we look at the population who struggled, uh, they weren't getting out much. You know, what what are we experiencing now mm-hmm. post-COVID in mm-hmm. this era? That's a really good question. And I think what we're experiencing are people who did not go see their physician for Two years. Yeah. Right. I can tell you the number of diabetics that have been sent to me, newly diagnosed or with chronic diabetes that just have not received care in two years, is higher the past two months than I think it's been in my career. Wow. So I really feel people didn't knock it out. I never saw any patients. Yeah. Um, wow. I would call some of my patients I knew and see how they were doing on the phone. Um, people couldn't get food. People in a rural community, oh, I, I you know, how do they get anywhere? Right. Um, so I feel that it's really hurt a lot of people's health. When I see people in my office, I can't tell you how many people have said, I've gained 20 pounds the past two mm-hmm. years. I gained weight. You know, I know what I'm doing and I know I I gained weight during Mm -hmm. COVID. It was a hard time for Mm -hmm. all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think we all were in our home cooking and eating to make us feel better Mm -hmm. um, or not eating the right foods to make us feel better. So I I really think it's been detrimental to a lot of people's health, particularly in this rural setting that we have because doctors are 20 minutes or a half an hour away or the fear of catching COVID in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that really has affected the on. health of our community. Yeah. Really so don't. so as you see this, you know, now post-COVID, mm-hmm. if we can we can say that, uh, but post-COVID here, at least in, in Hillsdale County, are you seeing a return to your services and to primary care mm-hmm. then? I have been. I okay. would say just in February and March. Right. Um, all of a sudden, I have noticed more trend. referrals. The other thing I've been noticing is that oftentimes well-meaning providers refer people to me. 
but that patient may not be ready or willing to come and see me. Yeah. I mean, who wants to see a dietitian? Because they think when they come and see me, I'm going to say, diet you time. can't eat this, you can't <laughs> eat that. You know, that's right. not what I'm about at all, as you all know. Right. Um, but I think now they're scheduling yeah. with me. I have very few people saying, eh, I don't think I want to come. They want to come. And if for some reason there's a barrier with their insurance, um, they say, well, how can I see you? And I have set up several barriers in our hospital. Sure. I have a nutrition class once a month mm -hmm. that anybody can come to. Um, so I, I'm seeing people more interested yeah. in right. their health because I think people realize what happens when they ignore their health mm -hmm. for Absolutely. two years. And yeah. people felt poorly when they were sitting at home, right. not eating well, not controlling their blood sugar. Afraid to go mm -hmm. out, not exercise. Well, I can give you a success story real quick, Rachel, before we get into the interview. And a friend of mine who I uh, recommended to go see one of our providers, he did. He was diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, and then it was recommended that he see Denise. And you know, he was scared. He told me that. He cornered me after church. He's like, man, I'm just really scared. He's a big brute of a guy. I'm like, you're scared? Why are you scared? He's like, I just, you know, they're going to cut my food. I, you know, I just really enjoy that. And he was really deeply concerned mm -hmm. enough where he approaches me after church. And I said, right. you're going to do well with Denise. And it was two or three weeks later. He came back and he said, hey, you know what she said? She said, I can even have a McDonald's every once in a while. And I think the important aspect of it is that you're, you're working with them, you know, you're, you're telling them that your life can change a little, but it's not going to be a, you know, a total drastic change, slowly implement these strategies and success story right. is that he's lost about 35 pounds. Wow. He feels the best he's ever felt in his life. Now he still goes out and he eats every once in a while, which again, you can reward yourself in moderation. And he is a success story for her program. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited today to talk a little bit more about this uh, here in our community, but that impacts all communities around rural America. Right. And, you know, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about diabetes in particular in a minute, but I do want to talk about nutrition because in today's environment, a lot of people get their information about nutrition and what is or is not healthy and their frame of mind and how they think about food is based on social media. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of people on social media who are who are putting out this information that ends up really being harmful to mm -hmm. people, there's a lot of fear mongering like, oh, don't eat this food because it has this in it and that's going to kill you even if the amounts are like you'd have to eat a thousand pounds of it, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but also things like these are bad foods and these are good foods or, mm -hmm. oh, here's a healthy swap for this and and how that creates, you know, difficulty in people's mind and shame around food and all those things. Absolutely. And when you're in a rural community where you have maybe less access to food, mm -hmm. uh, just by location, not necessarily even the type of food, True. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a different economics um, that has a huge impact on it. And also, like you said, it has to be very personal because, you know, it. It has to fit in with every part of that person's mm -hmm. life, like right. you said, and all those factors. Um, so, you know, particularly when we're talking about a lower household income, fewer grocery stores like we see in most rural communities, mm -hmm. how do you approach nutrition counseling and education? And also in the last, let's say, five years, five or 10 years with the onset of social media and it getting so much more popular with these wellness influencers, have you seen a difference in the way people, when they come into you, how they talk about food. And, and you kind of talked about the disordered thoughts that people yes. have. Do you yes. see more of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and this is my life right now. My life, every time I see a person, 
is dispelling misinformation and talking about the contradictory information. Yeah. And sometimes people don't believe me. Right. I mean, it's, it's been tough. You yeah. know, I, I, I can only do what I can do. I try to gain their trust. But it has made this whole problem of being well-nourished very difficult. Right. And I think in a rural com- community, one of the things that I do see is a, general, a generational lack of nutrition knowledge. And mm. I don't say that to sound condescending at all. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just in a rural community, families stay mm-hmm. and they eat the way their parents did, who ate the way grandma and grandpa did. And, and they may not know this nutrition information. Mm-hmm. They don't seek out information from a dietitian. Most of them don't know my profession even exists. Right. They don't go to their providers. So I think that compounds that more. And then when they get on social media and their whole idea of healthy food is skewed, mm-hmm. that they have to go out and spend $5 on smart pop popcorn when they can buy kernels of popcorn and make their own popcorn, Mm -hmm. or when they have to buy keto cookies and fat-free this and sugar-free that. Um, I I think clean foods and organic foods. term is like so... Organic produce is twice as high as regular produce. And And there's no nutritional difference, right? No nutritional difference at all. I feel scammed. I mean, I learned that probably... Denise and I have already kind of had part of this conversation uh, because I have recently just been reading a lot more and learning a lot more about nutrition in general, especially now with my son being mm-hmm. one year old and he eats, mm-hmm. you know, um, he, well, he's been eating solid food since he was six months old. But mm-hmm. thinking about, OK, I literally, Denise, I'm telling you, I was at the grocery store and I'm looking at the Kroger brand of like baby food pouches, like the purees. Mm-hmm. I was looking at the Kroger brand, uh, 79 cents for a four ounce pouch. Mm-hmm. And then I see the Plum Organics, mm-hmm. three something mm-hmm. for a four ounce pouch. Yes. And I knew what I had learned about organic food, but there was still a part of me that felt like, but shouldn't I be buying him the better Mm -hmm. thing? Mm -hmm. Right. Right? Even though I knew the facts about it. Absolutely. And and that is a choice people make. And I don't denounce people for making that choice. Right. Right. You know, growing organically and eating organically is something that some people choose to do and they can afford to do. Right. But it is certainly nothing you have to do for your health. Right. It should be a matter of preference. preference. If if that makes you feel good and that's how you want to do it. Exactly. That's where I realized, oh, my gosh, I feel almost like guilted into as a mom, if I want to give my kid the best food, I have to buy him this organic stuff. And that becomes, I think, even more of a problem when your household income is limited, right? Absolutely. And I think that feeling of guilt is a good good concept to bring up because I do feel that people do have guilt if they're not eating the way that that social media person is mm-hmm. who weighs 100 pounds and right. shows you what I eat in yeah. a day right. and feeling guilty that, well, I don't like kale and I want to yeah. have spaghetti instead of spaghetti squash. You know, I mm-hmm. think that does play into it or, quite a bit. Denise, let's consider this. How about politicians across the United States that say we need to invest more in organic fields and all of these things that you hear? Is is that a little misleading, too? I think maybe in the back of our minds, we hear politicians talking about it. We hear, you know, the, the media talking about it. Then you've got all these social media influencers talking about it. I can see why someone like Rachel going to the grocery store would consider, well, I have a one-year-old. He's precious. Uh, right. How do 
what do I do? Right. Like, am I a bad mom if I don't buy him the what looks like the most expensive and therefore the best option? But Mm -hmm. when it comes to any objective factors related to his health, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Right. 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 Very concerning. It is. And I always promote whole food. Whole plain food is affordable. Mm -hmm. Beans, potatoes, rice, Mm -hmm. pasta, Mm -hmm. fresh meat, not sausage and bacon, which are quite expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it could be advantageous to be part of a rural community as well when it comes to health because we have farms surrounding our community that have produce stands Mm -hmm. constantly around. And I encourage my patients to Go buy those blueberries when they're fresh picked. Mm-hmm. Go pick some strawberries mm-hmm. and freeze them so you have them all year. Mm. Buy the two dozen ears of corn for a dollar twenty-five. Yeah. Right. Cut right. the kernels off and freeze it yes. so you have that. And then we also have access to good meat. You know, mm-hmm. that is one area that I truly believe beef that you can get on the farm is probably better than beef we can get in the grocery store. Sure. Right. And we have access to that here. Not everybody does, but that mm-hmm. is something we have access to. That's mm-hmm. an incredible point if you think about it, because, yeah. you know, when we talk about childhood uh, obesity and diabetes, typically you find those in the, the rural communities. But we also, as rural communities, have better access to fresh f- fruits, meats, mm-hmm. vegetables. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and something in Michigan that's happened, I don't know if it's like that in Indiana, um, but in Michigan, billboards across the state, you know, farm to table. Yes. And oh, there's yeah. This there's concept. a huge is there, is there an Indiana too? So you're well, farming. I feel like that's a, a just a popular thing in, in a, culture now. Yeah. The it, farm to table idea. Okay. It's almost been like gentrified, if yes, you will. Yes, it has. Yeah. Because there's all these, you know, fancy restaurants that, that they're going to charge you $25 yeah. for a plate of hummus and vegetables. Yeah, and it might be delicious, but it's like, yeah, it's like farm it. to table. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, it's farm to thing. table? My grandmother grew up with farm to well, table on the, the farm. But that's the concept, though. Right. If you think about it, I think if you look at rule, that's what we're trying to get back to. Our good friend John Berktka, you know, he, he, he had a, a lot of conversation with our state leader about investing grants and dollars in this farm, you know, to table concept. And they did. Michigan has developed a tremendous amount of money in that area, as well as hops, you know, and, and for breweries. But I think that's an important aspect to consider is that we have the availability, you know, to focus on fresh fruits, fresh vegetables and fresh meats. Wow. We could probably talk for hours, but we, we probably should get going in our, uh, our next set of interview questions. So, you know, Denise, we know that chronic disease is a major concern in rural America, often Often coming on uh, to us, and we we have information from the community health needs assessment tells us what our key priority areas are, and and you know there's a lot of reasons for this. But let's talk about diabetes in particular. You know, is diabetes more prevalent in in, in rural communities? Number one, and if so, what contributes to that? So I actually just looked this statistic up, and it is 17% more prevalent in rural communities, Wow, which is pretty huge. And and the reasoning for that is obesity is more prevalent in rural communities, Um, just for some of the things we've talked about, lack of knowledge about what type of foods to buy, um, lack of resources to buy those healthy foods, and, and then also just some of that knowledge and perhaps not seeing your provider enough. Um, I might be jumping ahead, but when I see someone diagnosed with diabetes, Mm -hmm. often they've had it for five years. That actually is the average age of diagnosis because they don't go to the doctor to get checked up. They go when they get really sick or when they're having a surgery and lo and behold, 
oh, you've got diabetes when they do that lab work. So I think that's part of the reason, too. I just the statistics about going to providers, transportation to providers, all those things right. that I'm sure you've all discussed can be problematic. Right. Absolutely. You know, Denise, uh, oftentimes we talk about processes. And so, you know, you just indicated that someone could have diabetes for five years and, you know, not even know or come to be diagnosed. So what does it take for someone to get diagnosed with diabetes in rural America? And, you know, beyond that, I guess, what barriers do they have to overcome that? Mm -hmm. Uh, And how does that process usually occur? Mm -hmm. So it usually occurs with a provider visit and finally having some blood work done. Um, The New American Diabetes Association recommended recommendations actually state everyone over the age of 35 now should have their their glucose checked annually, particularly if they have it in their family. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, So they get diagnosed usually just from a a normal physical or provider's office. And then hopefully what will happen at that time, at that very moment, is that provider will refer them for education. Mm -hmm. And the thing that we all have to remember about diagnoses of diabetes or cancer or anything is you don't hear anything that doctor's telling you. Right. And well-meaning providers give them a lot of information about diabetes, but by the time they come and see me, they don't remember any of that, mm-hmm. and they really know very little. So it's I a think shock, right? It, it's just a shock, and they all tell me that, and it's that's kind of the first thing we have to work through is, okay, mm-hmm. you have the this. The emotional, it's mental not, side yeah. of it. Because a lot of them, especially in a rural county, have seen their fathers and grandfathers yeah. suffer consequences, and they think they're doomed from the beginning. You, you know, Denise, my first introduction to this was back in the 80s. My aunt, uh, very you know prominent in her circle in Indiana, uh, was diagnosed with uh, diabetes, and she had both of her legs amputated. And so I remember as a kid always thinking, I don't want that stuff. Exactly. And, and, and then my brother uh, developed diabetes and I thought, oh, surely he's going to have his legs Here's amputated, it's, it's... you know, but, but he followed a regimen right? and he went through the shots and the series of shots. And I think, you know, part of that is early detection is early prevention. Absolutely. And, early and, detection is early prevention, yeah. early education. Mm-hmm. Helps very much. Right. Um, absolutely. And also giving them the hope that that's not going to happen. Yeah. Because that's pretty traumatic to be diagnosed with something when you've seen something like you saw in with your, your grandma right. and you just automatically, automatically think, gosh, it's I'm going 35, to that's going to happen. Right. Yeah. And if that's all you know of it, how would you assume anything otherwise? And right. we know so much more about diabetes today than we did mm-hmm. even when I started counseling 30 yeah. years mm-hmm. ago. It, it's mm-hmm. it, There's no need for it to ever happen again. And right. it must be tough for you to have, you know, we've heard about these words, non-compliant mm-hmm. diabetic, mm-hmm. brittle diabetic that's non-compliant. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've known some people yes. commonly who've yep. done that. And and that's, that's playing with fire, isn't it? It is. And I really do hate the term non-compliant because I really think that individual just doesn't understand. Right. I right. haven't reached them the That's provider hasn't reached That's a good them. Point. Um, because even after somebody sees me, mm-hmm. When they come back for the follow-up, they may not have understand what I said. And that's not on them. That's on me. You know, I have to find a way to to make that. So I I think noncompliance is is a a tough word. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I really think it's just no one has explained it to them the correct way. Yeah, right. Or our diet culture of restrictive diets Mm -hmm. their whole life, putting them in this yo-yo weight cycling situation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. has made it so it's difficult to lose weight, which is Mm -hmm. something that 
the doctor often will tell someone diagnosed with diabetes, that'll be the first thing they say. Oh, it is. If lose. you lose weight, your blood sugar is going to come yeah. down. Oh, so I've then that. that puts and then this they're like, pressure. okay, what's the latest? Yeah. You know, and then they Google and social media, and then we the get fans, back to that. Problem. You get back to that. And they get back to that diet where they lose weight quickly and they gain it back, and now mm-hmm. their metabolism's a little messed up. So, you know, the earlier we can get people with diabetes, the better. You know, Denise, okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, so, so you have a patient who has diabetes and you, you know, they're seeing their primary care and they're also coming to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but in rural America, we also know that it is a poor economy and it's, you know, we have a households that are very poor. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe firsthand knowledge mm-hmm. that individuals who cannot afford their insulin or those, that's a real issue in rural America. This is a huge issue right now. And this is getting political because the cost mm-hmm. of insulin and the cost of a lot of medications are different based on the insurance you have mm-hmm. or if you have or have not insurance. Mm-hmm. And we see people in our hospital often that are there because they couldn't afford their medications. Correct. And mm-hmm. some of the newer best medications. There is a group of medications out that protects a diabetic's heart, their kidney. Mm. It's recommended for first line. It's very, very expensive. expensive. And most Mm -hmm. people can't afford it if their insurance won't pay, but insurance will pay for some medicines that don't don't work as, as well. Good. Mm-hmm. Even insulin, mm-hmm. not insulin that yeah. works as well. Access to insulin. And, and so so that, just as an example, because, um, oh, what was, what's the guy's name? I think he might be in prison now, but the guy who uh, jacked up the price of insulin. Oh, yeah. Artificially. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Martin yep. Shkreli or something like yeah, that. I can't remember. Um, I think that might be his name. But you know, that I think brought the insulin conversation specifically to the forefront, mm-hmm. even though the sure cost did. of pharmaceuticals has been a discussion for a long time. But just as an example for, for people who are listening who, you know, I mean, I have insurance and I have not fortunately not been in a position where I've needed a medication that my insurance didn't cover. So if you're in that position from a dollar amount, like what kind of expense are we talking about to buy those out of pocket? Um, insulin can cost up to $1,000 a month for a oh type 1 patient taking several shots a day. Yeah. That's a really nice mortgage. I have a friend who has a son with type 1 diabetes that doles his insulin out because of his insurance plan. Wow. It means he won't always give himself what he needs. Mm. Um, and some of these newer meds, I'm here. I don't know this for sure, right. but what I'm hearing from my patients is, I love this new medication, but it's costing me 800 dollars a month. And they oh sacrifice gosh. other things right. in their life right. uh, for, for other medications medication. or mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. food. And one of the, th- the reasons that we launched this program with Denise, because it's we don't make money. Right. It's a community benefit mm-hmm. is we were watching readmission rates. We were yeah. watching people come into the ER who would admit we couldn't afford mm-hmm. our insulin. Mm-hmm. I even had most recently, about two months ago, one of our providers ended up purchasing the insulin mm-hmm. for the patient mm-hmm. to have a 60-day supply. That's wow. pretty amazing. But and that's I, what happens in rural America. Um, and I think a lot of people in this hospital, <laughs> myself included, have done that for we patients have. before. Yes, we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's tough. And diabetes, it's it's not just that. You have all kinds of other things. You test your blood sugars, and those strips cost a buck every time yeah. you check your blood sugars. Oh, wow. um, and then there's just, you know, the food part. And mm-hmm. it's just very, 
very expensive disease, which is very stressful, right. which makes your blood sugar go high. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always have to kind of, as healthcare workers, remember that stress that they're under and mm-hmm. see what we can do and what resources we can get for them right. to help manage Well, we diabetes. can honestly say the three of us in here, we're blessed. You yes, know, and, and we're blessed beyond measure when you consider what individuals are going through mm-hmm. right now who are making decisions every day between eating and mm-hmm. taking their medication. Absolutely. It is a sad mm-hmm. state of affairs. Really and getting any form of health care. You know, Correct. I mean, we see that all the time. Right. And, um, you know, so let's talk a little bit about, um, again, kind of with the process, once a patient is diagnosed, Mm-hmm. What's the next step? I mean, we've already talked about a lot of the the things that happen in in that period, but you know, it's not like like you said, it's an expensive disease. It's not like okay, I have a um, you know an infection and I'm going to take a round of biotics and right. antibiotics and then I'm good. Mm-hmm. Right? It's considered a chronic disease, so there's a lot more that that person has to think about. I mean, I imagine it would be all-consuming, at mm-hmm. least in the beginning. In the beginning, it can be all-consuming, and that's that's why I think a lot of providers that I work with and myself try and take this in small bits at a time. Mm-hmm. But this is something that affects every aspect of your life. Right. Um, they have to, they're taking a new medication possibly, they may mm-hmm. need to change their diet. Um, they have to learn to manage their stress because right. if they're stressed, their blood sugar is going to go up. They have to learn to move more. Mm-hmm. Um, movement definitely helps keep their blood sugars in control. And they do have to kind of consider most things they do and how that may or may not affect their blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And we try to make that easier for them in education. We have some clinic providers I know that do a wonderful job educating their patients they on do. diabetes. They do. Um, just wonderful. It's just so nice to kind of partner with them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Medicare pays for 13 hours total of diabetes education and nutrition therapy that first year of diagnosis because they know how important wow. that is. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a about the food, we teach them how to cope, right? How to relieve stress. How do you cope with a chronic disease? Right. What well, are I was going to say, there's there's got to be a mental health aspect a- to absolutely. this. You know, like how often do you mm-hmm. find, um, you know, that you need to recommend or suggest someone talk to a counselor because mm-hmm. of other issues they're having that are outside of your scope? Pretty often, and the statistics say from the American Diabetes Association, one in three individuals with diabetes suffer from depression. Mm-hmm. So is it the depression causing the diabetes, the vice di- yeah. versa? Right. We're not sure, but that that is a true thing. Wow. So, you so, got to attack both of them. Yep, and so that them. is exactly... I've got those resources and provide them with those resources to mm-hmm. mental health professionals. So that frequently. initial, so Medicare covers 13 hours of that initial education. The 10 hours of diabetes education in a group setting, mm. one individual hour, and then three hours of nutrition therapy. Okay. And many insurance companies do follow that, but there is a there is um, a copay for that, mm-hmm. 20% copay for that mm-hmm. for most insurance. Okay. So, Denise, I think you're deploying several strategies to try to reach out to the community. Mm-hmm. I know that you're bringing some education classes that typically would charge for. Mm-hmm. How, how, you know, what recommendations would you give, you know, to our listeners? They may be in other states across the United States for how to accomplish something like sure. that. The first thing to do is to call your local hospital, mm-hmm. you know, find out what services they have. But then a lot of community action agencies, senior centers, um, community centers do have diabetes education programs. There is a program called PATH, P-A-T-H, and I cannot tell you what that acronym stands for, but I, I believe 
that's in Michigan, I know. And those are free educational tools that a lot of the community action agencies have. I refer a lot of people to those programs. Recently, they've been doing it through Zoom. And it's not diabetes specific, but it's how to deal with a chronic disease. And it helps them learn how to cope with the chronic disease specific to the disease. So they do receive a little diabetes education there, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that it's a good program. If they can't, their insurance doesn't pay and they Mm -hmm. can't afford to come and see me. Mm -hmm. You know, you've been doing this for several years now. Let's talk a little bit about impact uh, on the community. So what, you know, I guess, what are the changes and outcomes you've seen in your practice while you've been here at Hillsdale Hospital? Mm -hmm. The changes over the years definitely have been more medications. You know, Mm -hmm. I think when I started, there were three or four oral medications. Wow. Now I think there's 20-something. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, there used to be about 8 to 10 blood glucose meters. Uh, there's probably 40 of those right now. Mm-hmm. I get those all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I see with newer technology, A1Cs are coming down quicker than they used to. And oh, wow. A1C is the, the kind of the gold standard measure of how your blood sugar is doing 24-7. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with the new medications, the new meters, education has become more inherent in all areas, mm-hmm. not just our mm-hmm. hospital. Our hospitals had a diabetes education program ever since I began, yes. mm-hmm. which is great. It's fantastic. Many rural hospitals around us do yeah. not have diabetes education programs right, right now. Right. Um, but I think I think we know so much more about diabetes now than we did 30 years ago. That control is much much easier, yeah. mm-hmm. and there's much more hope for people that are diagnosed with diabetes now mm-hmm. because of these new new technologies and just the new information. When I started in doing this in the late 80s, a blood sugar of below 180 was acceptable. We now know that blood sugars in the 180s, 170s, 160s, or 150s are doing damage to our body. Mm. And that's why your grandma may have had problems and my grandma had problems because, gosh, back then, Mm -hmm. if it's 200, it's good. And we know now our blood sugars. Where the ranges are. Let's talk about technology because I remember growing up with a family member who had diabetes. he would have to take the shots Mm -hmm. and um, we would oftentimes end up with knowing when he needed to to take a shot. Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't know, but we could see the signs and, Mm -hmm. you know, temperament behaviors Mm -hmm. and or actions. Now what's amazing now is my nephew who I believe is around eight. He has a little device on him and he has a phone and that phone is synced with his parents' phone. And it tells us when Johnny needs to have uh, Some food. Uh, basically, yeah, or, food or, or even a push of yeah, insulin. What? Yeah. Yes. And it's a little device that he wears on his arm. Yep. And he has a little phone in his pocket. Mm-hmm. And his parents have it linked up as well. And if they notice that it's low, they can mm-hmm. send him an alert exactly. or the school an alert. Isn't yeah. that incredible? It's amazing. How does that work? It's continuous glucose monitoring. It's It has a little cannula that goes into your arm mm-hmm. and just constantly measures your glucose wow. and is recording it why it That's happens crazy? and a lot of them are set up with alarms which are great for young children and the mm-hmm. elderly population yeah. the alarms that set off if it's starting on it's trending down mm-hmm. so you can get up and make sure that you're going to have a snack or if it's trending high if you're on insulin you can give yourself a little bit of insulin here and there um amazing and insulin pumps are something that a lot of people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes have now. And those continuous monitoring glucose systems mm-hmm. can talk to those pumps. Oh, wow. So when your blood sugar is trending up, 
it, it'll it's just his, automatically give you a little bit more insulin what his does. cut his, back. Yeah. So, so there's certainly cool. things that have to be monitored, but it is right. amazing. There is um, a glucose monitoring system as well that you can wear on your arm. Right. And it will measure your glucose, I believe, 10 times a day and mm. keep track of that for you on your phone mm-hmm. wow. or on, if you don't have a phone, they have a little device. They have a device. Mm-hmm. And insurance is starting to pay for that yeah, for our type 2 diabetics, which is right. very nice because previously it was just for type 1 diabetics. Um, so that's just been it's an incredible really way to nice. Control it. They don't have yeah. to poke their fingers and they can, I can look at that as an educator and their provider can see where the trends are that helps us figure out what kind of yeah. medication they should be on and what how they should be eating. Right. And then the other big advancement, it's been about 10 years, but our insulin pens. Oh, sure. You probably remember the needles oh. used to be very, very large and they would have to measure out mm-hmm. their insulin. Mm-hmm. Diabetics often have poor eyesight, so there oh, was a lot of inaccuracies. With the, now they have insulin pens, mm-hmm. teeny tiny needles, and you just have to click so many clicks, mm. and that's how much insulin you need to give. Yeah. So that has been really beneficial for a lot of older patients with mm-hmm. dexterity issues yeah. or vision problems. Right. Those have been around for about 10 years. But they're more acceptable now. Mm-hmm. Back then, you had to have a problem or you couldn't get it. Right. Now, yeah. I think more insurances are covering those right. for everybody. Right. And so you would nice. think, I mean, it, it is surprising to me at the lack of coverage that insurance companies are providing for some of this stuff. Because don't don't they have an actuary somewhere who can tell them yeah. that unmanaged Absolutely. diabetes is going to cost them more than paying for Tremendous prevention? Tremendous amount more. Exactly. It's, I, I don't understand and again, that, but I'm is, not in that industry. This, this is my life as well. Yeah. I mean, often they, they will pay for bariatric surgery, but they will not pay to come and see me first. It's just unbelievable. They yeah. will pay for lots of other things, but they won't pay for diabetes education. So... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We have it's some phone calls to make. We just, yeah, right. <laughs> if only it were that easy. We yeah. could just change it all. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. Right. Well, Denise, it is clear that your passion is just infectious uh, for this, you know, that you've been engaged in here now for decades. And most recently, <laughs> most recently, <Forever. laughs> yeah, the 10 years that I've spent working with you, I've watched lives truly transformed from well, it. Thank you. And you have done a phenomenal job representing the hospital. And to my fellow CEOs around the country who may be listening, you know, please, I encourage you, look at a program like this, engage in a program. It's going to have better health outcomes for your community, less readmission rates in your hospital. And, you know, for the patient, it's important. You know, we can prevent potentially early death. Uh, as a result of this. And that early detection is truly early prevention. So, Denise, it's been a pleasure again to have you on our program. Thank you so much for being part of Rural Health Rising and for the commitment that you make each and every day to our patients and their families to ensure great positive health outcomes. So thank you so much. Thank you. Now, before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So we want to know, Denise Lovinger, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your most favorite memories that is unique to rural life? So I am a hobby photographer. And Are you really? I am. How, have we talked about this before? Because I'm having, at first I was like, wait, how did I not know that? And now I'm thinking, did I know that? We might have known that. It's been a long while, Rachel. It's been a really long year this week. So So one of my favorite things to do living in this rural community I live in is at sunrise or sunset, get in a car with my camera at all seasons and temperatures and find the smallest country road I can find 
and look for something to take pictures of. And I often will pull off in the ditch, which I know I shouldn't do. Every once in a while, I'll ask a a, a farmer or a homeowner if I could park in there and take pictures. Um, But that is such a peaceful time to park that car and walk down a country lane at sunset, Mm -hmm. the quiet, taking pictures. And my favorite memories about that, though, are every time I do this, particularly in the winter, Mm-hmm. I probably have one to two well-meaning people see my car and thinking in that dish <laughs> or off the side of the road. Can we help you? Is there anything we can help yeah. you with? And I always think that's just so great. It you know, is. I don't know. We we see that in other places, other yeah. urban areas. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's not a unique experience, but that's a very yeah. favorite that's thing of mine. And I couldn't do yeah. that if I lived at a in an urban area. Absolutely. So yeah. it's just our country's countryside's beautiful. That's awesome. You never know what you're going to come across. Yeah. Great right. story, Denise. Mm-hmm. Great story. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com start with the why and we do this on every episode to get to know our viewers just a little jeez I didn't just say that viewers <laughs> you always say listeners on Facebook live and viewers when I we do it. this I it's know like it. a what's that, that when hard. you have that one thing you can never uh huh there's a yeah there's a word for it that I also can't remember <laughs> <laughs>